Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for the opportunity we've had to sing about how great you are and about how great your Son is. And We're excited to be able to be here today to study your Word together as well and to be able to reflect upon your greatness. May today be a day where we are encouraged, where we are convicted, where we are compelled to worship you as you deserve to be worshipped. All of this for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, I'd love to invite you. I'd like to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8, if you would, this morning. If you find Romans 8, we're going to read the first four verses. Romans 8 is a favorite among Christians. It's a favorite because of the fact that it talks about how God has been so kind and gracious in saving sinners that we are no longer under condemnation because of the work of Christ. But what we'll do this morning is not just look at how great it is because of what is in it for us. We'll look a little closer and look at the greatness of the God who is behind the great work on our behalf. And so let's take the time to do that as we look at these first four verses of Romans chapter 8. In verse 1 it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is what we love, right? Just pausing for a moment. There is no longer any condemnation. And if you read what comes before in Romans, you learn that there was condemnation because each and every one of us have violated God's righteous standards and, and we justly deserve to be condemned. But because of the work of the Son, because of Christ, through faith in Him, to be in Him, there's no more condemnation. Then we keep reading and we learn about the work of God the Spirit in verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life, which is a title for the Holy Spirit, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And we pause there and we say, "This, this is... Also amazing, because we're in the Son through faith in Him, there's no condemnation. But not only that, we see the work of God the Spirit. And as we studied this some weeks ago, the God the Spirit applying the work of God the Son so that there's no longer any condemnation. But then in verses 3 and 4, we see the work of God the Father behind all of this. Look at verse 3 with me, if you would. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So we read Romans 8, 1 to 4. We studied it several weeks ago and we're so encouraged and we want to worship God because He's saved us because He sent His Son to be this great, great sacrifice on our behalf. And that means there's no longer any condemnation. And we're thrilled and we're compelled to worship God because we're no longer under condemnation. How great is our salvation. But what we'll do this morning is what we began doing two weeks ago. Sorry for the pause last week. And that is not only being impressed with the greatness of what is ours, but being impressed with the God who is behind giving us this great salvation. 
clearly as I took time to pause as we work through these four verses, we see the work of God the Father. We clearly see the work of God the Son. And we clearly see the work of God the Holy Spirit, the triune God. And so we're just pausing to do this brief series on the Trinity. There is one God who eternally exists in three persons. That's the historic biblical teaching of the Trinity that Christians have embraced all along. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. To not only be impressed with what is ours, as good as that is, but to also be impressed with the giver of what is ours, who is God. I won't give you all of the reasons why we're doing this study. I gave reasons last time, but perhaps I'll just mention one of them. We are living in a time right now where we have an aversion uh, to history, to formalized doctrines. It's not something we're really very into. In fact, uh, some of us have been raised in a background where it's very creedalistic, I might say, very confessional, where you just learn to stand up at the right time and sit down at the right time and say all of the right things at the right time. And it's left a bad taste in our mouths. Certainly left a bad taste in my mouth. I said all the right things, stood up at the right time, sat down at the right time for about 19 years. I was good at it. And then someone confronted me with the gospel the truth about Jesus Christ and what He has done. And it absolutely rocked my world. And while it was very immature, here's what I did. In my mind, I concluded I wanted nothing to do with anything looking anything like a confession or a creed or a catechism. I wanted nothing to do with it because I associated something other than the gospel with those things. And then the longer you're a Christian, the more you grow and you learn and you realize that even a stop clock is right twice a day. And you learn that even though maybe the gospel wasn't there or your eyes weren't open to the gospel, there was much that was done and there was actually much that was said that actually was true, even if it were masked by something other than the gospel. And so it's important for us at times to stop our study, for example, of the book of Romans as rich as it is, and to say, let's stop and let's look at this God behind this great salvation. Let's stop and let's talk about the triune God. Let's talk about the Trinity. And let's appreciate the biblical reality that even was fought for throughout history. We may not start reciting the Nicene Creed week in and week out, standing up and sitting down at the right time. But the Nicene Creed actually is explicitly biblical when it comes to knowing who God is. One God eternally existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How can you rightly worship the God who has saved you if you don't know who He is? That's what we're looking to do. Enhance our worship keep ourselves from idolatry, thinking right thoughts, of, thoughts about God. As one Bible teacher said, the most important thing about you is what you think of when you think of God. Well, that's not a biblical statement, but it certainly gets us thinking. It certainly gets me thinking. Well, we're looking at four biblical realities. Four biblical realities or four biblical foundations that lead us to believe 
the doctrine of the Trinity. We looked at the first two, two weeks ago. I'll review them briefly, and then we'll look at the others. At the end, we'll talk about some different questions that relate to the Trinity that have to do with real life, that have to do with theoretical issues as well, that have to do with questions that people have been asking me and have asked me over the years. But let's look at these four biblical realities, reviewing the first two. If you're new to the Bible, you're probably going to get lost because while we're typically in one book of the Bible and it's easy to follow along, we're going to look at a whole bunch of different scriptures because we want to, again, answer the question, who is God? Well, you have to look at more than one passage to answer that question. The first biblical reality that leads people to believe in the Trinity, number one, is the oneness of God. The oneness of God. That is to say that there is only one God. Christianity is first and foremost monotheistic. One God. Christians have always only ever believed in one God. This is everywhere in the Scripture. It's all over the place. By way of review, we looked at Deuteronomy 6.4. The Lord our God is one. We looked at Isaiah 45, 5-7. Besides me, there is no God. As God Himself said, I am the Lord and there is no other we looked at Isaiah 43.10. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. The New Testament, 1 Corinthians 8.4, there is no God but one. James chapter 2.19, we look chapter 2 verse 19 as well. So we saw a whole list of scriptures that talk about this, that beat the same single resounding drum. There is only one God. Couldn't be clearer in the scripture. Now we move to review the second biblical reality that leads us to believe in the Trinity, and that is the existence of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as God. The existence of the Father, Son, and Spirit as God. Also, by way of review, sometimes you'll hear me say or other Bible teachers say, we believe that God eternally exists, the one true God, in three persons. Sometimes that's confusing because we think uh, persons equals humans. It's not, not, it's not what is meant in theology. It's not what is meant when you're talking about these matters. A person is someone who has intellect, emotion, and will. So, demons are persons in that sense. They have intellect, emotion, and will. Humans are persons in that we have intellect, emotions, and will. God is a person in that He has intellect, emotion, and will. Satan is a person in that sense. You get the idea. So we're not just talking about a force. We're talking about something that actually has personality, cognition, desire, drive. And we see that each of these persons is described as God. In Deuteronomy 4.35, it said, The Lord is God. Clearly talking about the Father. No one would debate that. John 1.1, we see the Son is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, you know it, right? Was God. It goes on to say in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And it's clearly talking about the Son. But He is God. The Spirit, we saw, is also described as God in John 14.16. In Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, the Holy Spirit is God as well. Now, some have thought, I've got it figured out. Okay, one God got that. Father's God, Son is God, Spirit is God. 
Some throughout history, and it shows itself now and then, have said, here's how it works. The Father was God, for example, like in the Old Testament. And then God became the Son in the New Testament. And then after the ascension, God became the Spirit. Or they've thought it's just the same God, not different persons, but they have three different names. It's called modalism. Three different modes, if you will. There's a huge problem with that. And that leads us to number three. A third biblical reality. Modalism is not the answer. I like it because I can get my mind around it and I can't get my mind around the doctrine of the Trinity, but if I'm going to follow the Bible, it doesn't work. So the third biblical reality that leads us to believe in the Trinity is the eternality of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The eternality that the Father is eternally God, that the Son is eternally God, and the Spirit is eternally God, and so you can't have one then becoming another and not being who He was, and then becoming another not being who He was two steps before. As you're seeing, this is more like one of our Bible Institute classes. Okay? This is not so much like a biblical exposition like we would normally do. But without apology with hopefully a pastor's heart, I say this is what we need to do sometimes. We can't take it for granted that we say, God is great. Because of Him, there's no condemnation. Let's worship Him. When we don't even really know who He is. There's a word for worshiping God while having a wrong idea who He is. It's all over the Bible. Since this feels like a classroom, what's the word, class? starts with an I. Give me a D. <laughs> it's called idolatry. And uh, try reading the Bible sometime and you find out that God isn't very pleased with people thinking the wrong way about Him, even if they have sincerity in their hearts. He's really serious. He as the one true God wants us to think about Him as if He were the one true God, the way He has revealed Himself, even if we can't fully get our minds around it. And so we don't want to say, I don't want to learn, I just want to worship. That's ridiculous from a biblical perspective. I want to learn so I can worship. Not that worship is an end in and of itself, but I want to know who God is so I can love Him with all my even mind, as the greatest commandment says, so I can worship Him and think right thoughts about Him. So in one sense, this is a, this is a lecture class on the doctrine of the Trinity for our worship, for the enhancement of our worship, right thinking about God so that we can exalt Him. And so when we hear things like, there is therefore now no condemnation, We can say, isn't that great? And isn't this God who has done this great? And I know who He is. And so I hope that's what's happening. That's my desire as a pastor. Eternality. Let's look at the eternality of the Father. Psalm 90. Have we looked at one Bible verse yet? I'm going to lose my job. This is Omaha Bible Church. Anyway, Psalm 90, if you would. And then we'll look at John 1. And then we'll look at Hebrews 9.14. And again, part of the nature of, of this is we have to look at a lot of different things and I need to just reference some things along the way. We've got one God, the Father is God, Son is God, Spirit is God, and then we have the eternality of each member of the Godhead. 
This isn't anything new. This is what Christians have always believed and sometimes had to fight over. But something we probably take for granted in our aversion to history, theology. Let's go ahead and see Psalm 90, verse 2. It's a great worship passage dealing with who God is. It says in verse 2 in Psalm 90, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It's excellent, right? From everlasting, you can't go back that far in, in, in your... Yeah, you have nothing to relate that to. To everlasting, you have nothing to relate that to because you're a human being. But he says, you are God. There would be no debating. He's talking about the Father. Then if we go to John chapter 1, verse 2, you can go ahead and turn there. I referenced John 1, 1. I quoted John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Clearly talking about the Son in light of verse 14. But picking up on chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 2, it says, He... Speaking of Christ, John 1, 2, He was in the beginning with God. Clearly borrowing, on purpose borrowing from Genesis 1 verbiage. In the beginning God, you know what? In the beginning God created, not in the beginning you know what. <laughs> in, the be- in the beginning God created, well He's using the same language on purpose to say, in the beginning He says, He was with God. The Son is there in the beginning. Before time is as we know it, the Son is there. Reaching back, the Son is there. That would be one passage amongst others that would lead us down the road of concluding not only that the Son is God, but the Son is actually as old, if you will, as the Father. From everlasting to everlasting. Then the Spirit, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, you'll see that the Holy Spirit is titled or labeled the eternal spirit, which kind of makes it a no-brainer in light of the eternality of the spirit. But go ahead and look at it, if you will. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, and we'll see he is called the eternal spirit. Hebrews 9, 14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God. So we actually see all three members there, right, of the Trinity. And he says, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. But he's called the eternal spirit. So there's no possible way you've got one ceasing to be what he was and becoming the other and then ceasing to be what he was then and becoming the other. Each of them are described, whether explicitly or implicitly, as eternal. Now, I don't know about you, but at this point in time, if I'm really engaged and I'm not just sleeping, my my mind is, I'm I'm feeling a little bit of a brain cramp, (laughs) okay? In fact, if you're you're not feeling a brain cramp, you're probably not thinking. I have nothing to relate this to. At the end, we'll talk about illustrations. I don't have any. I, have, I don't have a single illustration that I can give to you other than to use it as an example of a bad illustration. I don't have anything to relate this to. 
I can't say it's illogical because actually there's all kinds of data that is objective in the Bible given to us that we can actually organize in a logical fashion. There's one God. Father's God, Son is God, Spirit is God, and each of them are eternally God. You wonder why I don't have very much air? <laughs> it's like... <laughs> and by the way, the only presupposition to believing in the doctrine of the Trinity is you believe the Bible. If you believe the Bible is true, you really don't have another option. It's a good reminder of things that are spoken of by God Himself. Like in Isaiah 55 where He says, My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. I'm higher than you are. I'm different than you are. And you know what? I have to be okay with that. It's part of worship. Remember when Isaiah 6 describes the angels in the throne room of God, that picture of heaven, and they're crying out and they're saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I do this now and then and I'll do it again now to remind you that holy, holy, holy means not just sinless, sinless, sinless. Just at its very root, it means different, different, different. Or otherly, otherly, otherly. Or above, above, above. Or beyond, beyond, beyond. And that would certainly include sinlessness because He's separate from anything sinful. But we're too quick to make it sinlessness. It includes that. But he's saying, you are utterly different, God. They are saying. This is a good time to remind ourselves of that. We won't take the time to go there. It would be a good time to remind ourselves, though, too, that at times, God sternly rebukes the nation of Israel for thinking that He is just like them. He's not. And I not only want to be okay with that, <laughs> I actually want it to cause me to be like those angels who are holy angels saying, God, you are otherly, otherly, otherly. You're so different. You are transcendent, to use the theological word. And you, this transcendent, different God, are the author of be, the one who is behind, the author of my salvation, who has led me to no longer be under condemnation. So then I read Romans 8, and Romans 8 is even better. I'm thrilled that I'm not under condemnation anymore, but I'm thrilled that I'm not under condemnation because this amazing God who I can't get my mind around and who doesn't fit in my genie bottle has magnificently orchestrated it. This is absolutely amazing. The Father sends the Son. The Son lives and dies and rises again in my place, and His work is applied to me by the power of the Spirit. Pretty cool, huh? <laughs> I love it. But we all know theology is not relevant. <laughs> no! It's the very thing that drives our worship of God, protects us from idolatry. It's the most relevant thing in the whole world. Right thinking about who God is? This is amazing. Where was I? I was having fun. Fourth biblical reality that leads people and has led people 
throughout church history to believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, the truth of the Trinity, the explicit observation of the Trinity in the Bible. The explicit observation of the Trinity in the Bible. I have to pick and choose passages because of time. Why don't you turn to Matthew 3 and I'll give you some other ones. But we see example after example after example of all three members of the Trinity either present somewhere or each of them doing or involved in the same work. So while you're turning to Matthew 3, that's the classic one, Jesus' baptism, where you see all three members right there in the same exact passage. But we could take the time to look at creation. We see the Father is obviously there at creation. But not only that, we see that the Spirit is there at creation. Not only that, we see that the Son is there at creation, all three of them involved. Isaiah 44, I am the Lord who made thing, made all things. Colossians 1.16, all things were created through Him and for Him, and it's talking about Jesus. Genesis 1.2, and the Spirit of, the, of God was hovering over the face of the waters there at the beginning in Genesis 1.2. Before Jesus' birth, how about just listening to Luke 1.35, the angel answered her, here's what the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High, title for the Father, will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Father, Son, Father, Spirit, Son. But the classic one is this one in Matthew 3. Let's go ahead and look at that together if you're already there. In verse 16 it says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately He went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to Him. And He saw the Spirit of God. Now we've got the Spirit descending like a dove and coming to rest on Him. And behold, in verse 17, a voice from heaven said, This is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Obviously, it's the Father because He said His Son. We have all three members there. Modalism definitely doesn't work. All three there at the same time. Distinct. Yet there's only one God. Another one you could just jot down would be Matthew 28, 19. We don't need to go there because it's so familiar to so many. Jesus sending His disciples out and He says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Trinitarian formula for baptism. Very, very clear. And just think about that for a moment. It would have been no controversy to say, Baptize people in the name of the Father really wouldn't have been a big controversy. If you go to Jerusalem and you're there around the temple, there are all kinds of these little pools. And there are steps going down into the pool and there are other steps, I'll mention why, on the other side you come out of the pool. And the reason is because they wanted to be ceremonially clean. So they had all these baptismal baths, if you will, and you go down in certain stairs, but you can't use the same ones to get out because then you're going to defile yourself again. So you go down in one side and you come out the other side and then you're ready to go into the temple. All in the name of honoring God. Wouldn't have been a big deal. (laughs) But, But for Jesus to say, I want you to make disciples for me and you need to baptize them. Publicly, ceremonially wash them, if you will, in the name of the Father and the Son in the same sentence? With equality? And the Spirit? 
is radical. Equality emphasized clearly in the baptismal formula. We see the, the resurrection of Jesus. We won't take the time to look at all of these passages. The Father raises the Son, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. The Son raises Himself, John chapter 2. Remember, they said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. John chapter 2, verses 19 to 21. And the Spirit also, in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, He raises Jesus. And so when the trick question is posed to you, who raised Jesus from the dead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you know how to answer, right? The answer is yes. Yeah. Don't know exactly how that works. Just how it's described. Presupposition number one, and the only presupposition, the Bible. Okay. I want you to look at one more passage in this section, if you would. And it's a simple one, but it's a great one. Hopefully it changes the way we talk sometimes. And that's 2 Corinthians chapter 13. In 2 Corinthians 13, 14, it's one of those, we might say, typical Christian salutations that we hear in the Bible. It sounds like it comes from the Bible because it comes from the Bible. And, uh, but it's explicitly Trinitarian. Maybe should impact the way we talk. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, the Apostle Paul says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. He's covering all three. Feeling no need to explain how it all works. This is just what Christians believe. And he's assuming and anticipating that those who are hearing him know exactly what he's talking about. He's wishing them well from God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Got it figured out? If you do, we should worship you. Because apparently you're God. Because <laughs> you've got it all figured out. And now you're all-knowing. And you have this figured out. And the only person who's got this all figured out is God himself. Let's now step back. Realizing this is far short of what we could do. We could talk about different aspects of the, of the Son's deity or the, or, or the Holy Spirit's deity. We could do a whole sermon series on their relationship to one another which we won't do this morning. I mean, deep end of the pool stuff. But let's at least step back and, and, and let me ask some questions. Questions that some of you have asked me recently or uh, in the past. And I want you to think, how would you answer these kinds of questions? Because it's, it's, it's a bit of a test as to how well you understand these things. Not just so you can have a fat head, but so that you can understand them, so you think the right way about God, so that you worship God and not an idol. Question number one, in no particular importance, are there any good illustrations? I've already kind of showed my hand. I want to say the answer is no. I don't think there are any good illustrations. In fact, interestingly enough, throughout history, church history, Christians have not made a habit out of try, trying to figure out good illustrations for this. 
Christians have made a habit of articulating with words what the Bible teaches as a whole about who God is. In part because whenever somebody comes up with an illustration, it falls grossly short of the biblical reality and it leads people into believing lies about God, otherwise known as heresies. And so, be careful. Some will say God is like water because you have liquid, ice, and steam. By the way, if you're a Sunday school teacher and I'm walking on your shoes or, or you're stomping on your feet, I'm sorry, but we'll have a special class for you afterward to repent anyway. <laughs> We're all growing anyway, right? Let me, let, me, let me help you think through some of these things. Some say God is like an egg. I always like to start by saying, God is not an egg. Okay. Stop it! <laughs> okay? You know, you've got the Father as the shell, maybe. The Son as the, the white and the Spirit as the yoke. Um, I wish I could just scratch that from my eternal memory. But anyway. Or there are other, other illustrations as well. I had a junior high student tell me one time God is like her ski coat and has three different parts and she had it all figured out. Anyway, all right, think about this with me. Here's why those don't work, and here's why these are bad ideas. Let's start with the egg. Shell, father. White, son. Yoke, spirit. Those three parts make up an egg. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as three parts don't make up God. And if you think that they do, you just became unbiblical. And by the way, you're in a great company of heretics throughout history. The Father is God, fully presented in the Bible. The Son is God, fully presented in the Bible. The Spirit is God, not a third of God, fully in the Bible. And so it doesn't work. It absolutely doesn't work. The Father is not a third, and the Son is a third, and the Spirit is a third. It doesn't work. The same way with water. Liquid, steam, ice. Well, it's not liquid while at the same time steam, while at the same time ice. It doesn't work. God is... The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. Not part of God or making up God. Fully God. So the illustrations bail. And I wouldn't use them. Boys and girls, when your teachers, certainly none of these teachers, say God is like an egg. Say, I don't think God is like an egg. I had an egg for breakfast. (laughs) He's God. Okay? You know, I I use this too often, but I'll do it again. You know, it's almost like we're saying, since there are no illustrations, there's absolutely nothing to ultimately relate to Him. It's almost like we're talking about God or something. Yeah, we are. The Bible does use some images to help us understand who God is. He's Father. Sometimes he's described as mother. He has motherly characteristics of caring, right? Jesus is described as the son. He is the son. The shepherd 
Interestingly enough, when it comes to this doctrine, we really don't have any. It's just God. Okay, enough controversy. Here's another question. Somebody said, is the, Trin- the word Trinity found in the Bible? Well, if it were, I'm a horrible teacher because I never pointed it out. <laughs> no, it's not found in the Bible. But a lot of words aren't found in the Bible, even though they express and describe biblical realities. I don't want to take too much time on this, but this, when this doctrine has been battled over historically, this has typically been one of the accusations made by the anti-Trinitarians. They say, we only use Bible words, and you guys use extra-biblical words. In other words, we only believe the Bible, and you believe these confessions and creeds. The problem is both sides say they believe the Bible. But you've got to explain what you mean by what the Bible says. And so you use written statements to say, here's what we mean by what the Bible says. And so other words aren't used either. Rapture isn't used in the Bible, and it doesn't matter when you think the rapture is. If you're a Christian, you believe in a rapture because the Bible actually talks about one, whether you believe it's past, present, or future. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 talks about it. It's a Latin word, rapture, so it's not in our English translations or in the Greek New Testament. Another question is, which member of the Trinity should we focus on? That's a hot one. In a sense, I want to say, what's the answer? Yes. I mean, come on. Uh, God is to be worshipped. But what's interesting, and again, we could spend a whole time talking about roles and how they relate to each other because there are roles in the Godhead even though they're equal. But I would at least like you to, to think a little bit about this even if we can't have absolute closure. Think about the fact that Jesus, when he taught his followers how to pray in Matthew 6, said, when you pray, pray like this, our Father. Okay? And in Romans chapter 8, talks about the Holy Spirit helps us in our praying because we don't know exactly how to pray. Not only that, Jesus is described as in our intercessor as well. And, and I could never pray with any confidence that my praying would actually get to God if I were still His enemy, which happens through the reconciling work of Christ. I'm not His enemy. So you see all three involved. I want to say you just pray to the Father. He's the focal point. He's the emphasis. But then I've got uh, early chapters of the book of Acts and Stephen prays to the Son. So it's not a slam dunk. But the preponderance of evidence is praying to the Father by the power of the Spirit because of the work of the Son. And by the way, He's praying for you too. I want you to turn to one other passage. I said we wouldn't turn to any more passages, but then I said in this, in this section. If you turn to John chapter 16, it's another important one that has to do with roles, and I at least want to just see this for a moment because we do struggle with this. You're going to hear the sermon, the sermon series, and you're going to say, I repent of my lopsidedness and focus. You know, we need to be Trinitarian in our thinking, and I absolutely agree. I hope that happens. But just remember, keep going back to the Bible to see how the roles play themselves out. For example, John chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus, this is Jesus speaking, and Jesus is glorifying the Father, obviously, in the statements that he makes. Even in John 17, we're not going there for the sake of time. But here in John 16, 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And here's what I really wanted you to see in verse 14. He, talking about the Spirit, will glorify me. 
pretty interesting. Pretty practical even. So Jesus, like in John 17, is talking about glorifying the Father. Father, glorify yourself as you glorify the Son. So it's pretty hard to separate all of these things. But it's interesting in John 16 when Jesus promises this great, great blessing to the church, God the Spirit, but He says, He will glorify me. So on a practical pastoral level, when we're talking about Omaha Bible Church and what's happening, what's happening in this world, I would suggest to you that where the cross and Christ's redemptive work is elevated, emphasized, prioritized, which is what the Apostle Paul says he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it is of first importance, I would suggest to you that the Spirit of God is doing His work. He is alive and well. Let me reverse it. How can we tell if the Spirit of God is doing what He's supposed to be doing? It won't be, oh, Spirit, 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 Spirit. It will be Gospel, 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 Gospel. It will be when He comes, He will glorify me. I take great confidence in that. I love that. I don't think we're there, but you know what? At least we see a growing emphasis about how great Christ is and how great His work is. The Spirit is working. This is great. This is encouraging. And so please be Trinitarian. Rethink your thinking, if that makes any sense. But know that they they work together in doing certain things. And I don't think you need to split all your prayer time. And now I'm going to pray to the Spirit. Now I'm going to pray to the Father. Now I'm going to pray to the Son. I think you can pray to any member of the Trinity because they're God, each of them. But I also want you to read your Bible and, and see where the emphasis is and see where the pattern lies and to see how they, uh, each of them work when it comes to praying, when it comes to ministry. When people go off the deep end when it comes to the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the Trinity, it's typically with Bible verses in hand. But what it isn't is with Bible in hand trying to look at the whole big picture. And that's what we see happen throughout history. Let's learn from history and say, let's try to to look at the whole big picture and not fall off the deep end. Another question is, when we go to heaven, will we fully comprehend the Trinity? And I would say, no. We'll know way more than we do now. We'll see Christ. We'll be made like Him, which doesn't mean we'll become God, but we'll become sinless. We'll be as much like Him as we possibly can be without becoming the second person of the Trinity. But I don't think we're going to totally get this. So when, when we say, you know, at lunchtime, well, you know, at least we'll have it all figured out in heaven. Well, yeah, when you become God in heaven, we have a special class for you. <laughs> it's how to, be, how to not be a Mormon. Okay? So... You're still going to be a human being. If you understand God perfectly, then you understand something perfectly. And now you're omniscient. Right? At least that's where that would eventually lead you to thinking. I'm not going to totally get my mind around who God is because He's God and I'm not. I know that's news to some of you, but I said... <laughs> you got to be okay with that. There's always going to be somewhat of a mystery, even though it'll be clearer to me than it is now. Another question that's a very serious question that people ask me is, if a person denies the Trinity, can they be a Christian? 
And, and that's, a, that's an important question. I don't want to play God. I can't decide who goes to heaven and who doesn't, but I don't want to be arrogant and suggest the Bible doesn't talk about heaven and hell. When someone denies the Trinity, invariably they're going to deny the truth about Jesus. Typically they're going to deny the deity of Christ. And when you read your Bible, for example, in 1 John, if you deny the truth about Christ, whether it's His deity or His humanity, but you deny the truth about who Jesus is, you have no basis for assurance. Because fundamental to Christianity is the deity of Christ. And so when the JWs knock on my door, we don't have fellowship. We have evangelism is what we have. Okay, different religions entirely. The religion of Jesus is fully God and fully man, the second person of the triune God who came to save His people from their sins. And the religion known historically, by the way, as Arianism from Arius, the heretic in the fourth century. It's not new at all. And so we have to talk about who Christ is. I think the operative word is in the word deny. Can someone who denies the Trinity be a Christian? The answer is no, because Christianity is first and foremost about Christ and the truth about who Christ is, the truth about who God is. But there are immature Christians who when you teach them what the Bible says, they say, oh, yeah, that makes sense to me. I, I guess I hadn't really processed it at all and I wouldn't know how to say it the right way. We don't want to say that people they have to be scholars in order to be saved. A related question is, if a person believes in the Trinity, does it mean they're a Christian? Remember James 2.19, the demons believe the truth about God. They're not Christians. They're not saved. I believed in the Trinity for 19 years. I'm glad. I believed the truth about who God was. But I didn't know what the gospel was. I still thought the gospel was, yeah, Jesus died, and then I'm going to try to do my part, and as long as I do my part well enough, God will accept me. And that's a lie. That's not the gospel. So I believe the Trinity. A lot of people believe in the Trinity. Demons believe in the Trinity. It doesn't mean they're saved. Again, a stopped clock is right twice a day. Maybe one more question. How old is the doctrine of the Trinity? How would you answer that? I hope you don't think, when I say, how old is this doctrine? I hope you don't think, I need to, I need to consult a history book for that. If we're talking about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are each eternally God, how old is the doctrine of the Trinity? It's forever, right? It's an eternal doctrine because it's, it's the truth. It's the teaching about who God is. It's pretty old. <laughs> okay? From everlasting to everlasting, it's old. A lot of times that question gets asked because someone is opposed to the doctrine of the Trinity. And they want you to suggest to them that it's 4th century. Let's talk about that just for a moment and then we'll be done. At the Council of Nicaea, where we get the Nicene Creed, although it's been altered a little bit since then, Council of Nicaea, 4th century, I think 325, but I drink too much NutraSweet, so I don't remember exactly, but I think 325, the church did have to circle the wagons 
because a heretic by the name of Arius, where we get Arianism, not the communist kind, but even worse, okay? So they, they circled the wagons and they had to say, we need to have an official church council where we can articulate a statement summarizing what the Bible says to silence this man named Arius because he has a following, it's growing, he has a big microphone and, and, a, and a big speaker, so to speak. And yes, they had their official meeting and they hammered out and articulated the Nicene Creed to hopefully once and for all say, when you look at all the biblical data, it's not what Arius says as a, as a duty of shepherding the people. And it was a good counsel. We're, we're, we're thankful for that. But that doesn't mean that's where it started. By the way, this is what happens over and over with different heresies. You know, typically, you don't have um, some movement start that you might agree with because they had a counsel and decided on it. No, they're a bunch of... They already believe that. That's what the Christian community already believed. But there was some false teacher who was getting a big following and so the believers had to say, hey, we better write a, a statement or a document because we've got to silence that false teacher, which is one of the duties of church leaders. And it happens over and over and over again. People say, you know, whoever came up with that, you know, that Calvinism thing and those five points and, you know, what were, what were they trying to prove? Well, there were the five points of Arminianism. That's what started. And so to answer these issues, there were five objecting points that came up. That's all. It can be very helpful. But it doesn't mean that's where it started. We don't want to hang our faith on historic creeds. Right? So what does the Bible say? But remember, both sides say that that's what the Bible says. So you write down what you mean by what you say the Bible says, and we will write down what we mean by what we say the Bible says, and then let's compare the Bible. And so we can learn from these things, and they are actually helpful. Any other questions, class? (laughs) Maybe this should just be a marketing piece to take our Bible Institute classes. I don't know, but you know what? This kind of stuff does belong in there, but it belongs in here too. Because we're talking about God and who He is and what He's done. And I so badly want you to read Romans 8.1 and hear that it says there's no condemnation and to be thrilled and worshiping God, the true God, as a result. And so if this helps at least a little I'm encouraged, and hopefully I've done a good job being a pastor. If it just encourages you a little to think rightly about God. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you for the opportunity we have to think about Christ, and that we have to think about the Holy Spirit, and that we have to think about even your great plan that you orchestrated with your Son and with the Spirit. These are not things we have completely figured out, but at the same time, your Word has clarity. And so we find ourselves saying yes and amen to you, this one true and great God who has revealed yourself. We are so thankful. We're thankful that there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus by the power of the Spirit according to the plan of the Father. How great you are in your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.